Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts, Canis Albinus. You're saying? I like big babies and I cannot lie. Man, I just want to set that to music and away we go. <laughs> <laughs> Are you not going to continue, Mackie? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Hello, and welcome to the Polycast, episode 313. This is Jusane saying that, remember kids, sharing is caring, unless it's mine, then back off. And now I am going to introduce our hosts, Dan Q. Wedding bells are in the air. Makalua. I love the timing of every time somebody calls me on the weekend, I'm like in the middle of an uphill or something. It's like, guys. Mega Bears fan. Oh, where'd that snooze button go? And Candace Albinus. Hi. So far, according to Steam and, of course, the digital distribution platform for Civilization VI and Civilization V, while Civilization VI is a platinum seller, one of 12, so that's the top tier of sellers. In terms of most simultaneous players, it's something easier for us to measure, and it's also beyond the, <laughs> we already have your money. Uh, <laughs> Civilization VI and Civilization V are on that list. 6 was at 9 of 16, and Civilization 5 is 13 of 16. And they're not listed in alphabetical order, developer, publisher order, release date order, so I think that it's fair to say that that is the respective ranking for that, uh, whereas we don't see that in the uh, top sellers list. So, hey, yeah, good job, Civ. Am I right in saying that they made a discount on the DLC? I think they recently had all Civ 6 content 60% off or something like that as part of the summer sale. Yeah, I think that might play into it. That that probably helped. Bring back always peace. Oh. <laughs> what? We don't want the AI coded to create units in a game where you're not allowed to declare war? I have this whole army running around. I'm never going to use it, but I have this whole army running around. Oh, if Phil could only hear this. Uh, I can feel the rage. To, the solution I, to bad military AI is to just never, ever, ever fight a war. Well, a solution to the AI being so good at founding religions and you know spreading their missionaries is to go ahead and disable religious victory, and they still do it anyway. So you know, yeah, but they you know, part of that is that religion still has other bonuses besides just the victory. Whereas if you disable the ability to go to war, units would literally do nothing. Well, no, not necessarily. In some cases, depending upon the civics you adopt, you can put the units in the city and the garrison, and then they'll add loyalty. And so you're trying to settle border cities that could help extend the loyalty pressure. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. I stand corrected. I'll give you this one, and You win this round. Civilization VI gameplay guide with multiplayer focus. It was recorded for episode 311, the first part of this, included in episode 312, and now here in episode 313, we're going to talk about the last parts. Governors, governments, units, districts, and espionage. General gameplay guide in a competitive context, although to a considerable degree we can also extend that to a cooperative context. First up is Governors. And unsurprisingly, Magnus is given top marks. And again, this is really not anything new to those who even just play single player, quite honestly. But quoting from uh, this individual, Since you should be chopping and harvesting everything in your cities that yields production anyways, this combined with early civics cards such as a goji will be insanely... 
I have to yell that because it's in all caps. Insanely powerful, making chops and harvest yields in the city. The steward is in, give plus 50% yields from chopping, giving decent overflow that you can put towards more units or more infrastructure, unquote. And yes, Magnus got nerfed, but really, he's still extremely powerful. And I would expect in a lot of competitive situations, when if you're not trying to rush something to build units, then you're working on building infrastructure, perhaps, say, districts for combat later on. I still think that most competitive multiplayer is focused on the military aspect, at least to the point of decimating your opponent to perhaps somehow do some other victory condition other than domination, that this is extremely powerful and also extremely versatile. He also talks about the Groundbreaker start, which was mentioned here, the plus 50% yields from plot harvests and feature removals in this city. Extremely powerful early expansion when combined with early Empire and Ancestral Hall, but most importantly, this will allow you to expand without taking away from getting to 7 to 10 populations so that you can lock in your districts to keep the production cost of them low. This is absolutely true, even in multiplayer or single player or, you know, a cooperative or any game. I don't think there's any question that Magnus is very strong, specifically for putting out your first few cities. Liang has a part in it, but we'll get there. The idea that there's the promotion for population not getting lost from settling, put that together with the Ancestral Hall. Magnus is, is a very, very large part of making a very, very good early expansion. Does the... Uh... Production from harvesting, like, stone and stuff like that, carry over the same way that production from chopping does? Yeah, there's still that overflow. Yes. You do the groundbreaker overflow with the production cards, and you get just a lot of production already done on your units. And I also didn't mention Black Marketeer, which is very, very, very valuable, which the article mentions in getting um, resource-heavy resource units out if you don't have the resource. It's very valuable. Absolutely no reason not to get Magnus early. So just jumping ahead a little bit here to springboard off of what Drew just said, Black Marketeer strategic resources are not required in the city in order to build resource-dependent units. And of course, you can move Magnus around as need be. So I guess if, say, you've got a city that's landlocked and you want that person in there because you want to be able to construct musketmen because you don't have niter, and maybe later on in the game it's, oh, you know, I don't have coal and I need battleships, then you could move Magnus into a coastal city. Black Marketeer is a Tier 2 and on the right. The Tier 1 promotion uh, that's also on the right side of the tree is Provision, which the article also mentions. It's plus 20% production towards industrial zone buildings in the city. Settlers trained in this city do not consume a population. And so the settler trained in this city does not consume a population, of course, is something that you'd be able to have irrespective of whether or not you have any industrial zones in your game and whether or not you're going for an industrial zone in your game, which we will get to also in the article. Mentioned early Empire as well as Ancestral Hall. So you've got this groundbreaker, you've got Magnus. If you have Ancestral Hall, this is your tier one government building from your government plaza. It is going to give you plus 50% increased production towards settlers, and new cities also receive a free builder. So you get the settlers more quickly, and then the city gets up and running more quickly because there's a builder there. You don't have to get the builder in that city. You don't have to build that. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to move the builder in there. Plus, you're going to give yourself another governor title, which will also unlock the legacy policy card for the current Tier 1 government type, which also ties into the strategy, which we will get to when we talk about governments. And the early empire, talking about about early war, 
you're going to be able to get yourself plus 50% production toward ancient and classical era melee and ranged units. Early Empire was mentioned as a civic, and again, that itself is plus 50% production towards settlers. So you could have that from Early Empire, and then you could have another percent, 50% increased production towards settlers from Ancestral Hall. And seeing as how settlers get more expensive as you build them, just like builders, that just kind of feeds into itself very, very well. Absolutely. I can't think of any play style that would not include Magnus, and that includes multiplayer, Mm -hmm. especially if you don't have the resources. I can think of reasons where it's like maybe in my game I'm doing a, I'm going multiplayer, but going for a religious victory, so I'm going to focus on Moksha. But I would say in most cases, even then, like it would be hard to pass up on Magnus. Yeah, even if you were going religious, okay, you're going to get your holy set up, which you can get on early in the game, and you can also get a governor very early on in the game. You adopt Magnus, you get the holy set up, you get your temple up. That ability to take existing production, removing those features from the map, so you're then getting that much more from chopping down the forests, when you can get that, yields into any victory condition that you're trying to set up, whether you're on the defensive and the defensive as well. And a little later on, it's going to talk about how sometimes there's a a jack-of-all-trades but master-of-none government type. But when it comes to a governor, seeing as how you can also move the governor around, and you may be thinking, but Dan, you guys talk about how gold is so powerful in the game. And yes, gold will become powerful in the game, but early on, when you can get Magnus, your production is almost certainly going to be outstripping your ability to buy anything. Plus, you could also use that production from Magnus to help build your gold infrastructure by constructing commercial hubs and markets, etc., which we'll get to. So yeah, like you were saying, Drew, whatever it is that you are trying to do, because it's early in the game and because you can have that resource yields being applied to anything that you can construct in the city, and seeing as how you need cities to be able to do anything in this game anyway, it is incredibly powerful. Have we talked about how incredibly powerful it is enough yet? I don't know. You almost hit a point, and I wanted to say this, that in Civ Six, production is still the most powerful resource in the game, and Magnus is the one you go for if you want production. So, At least in the early parts of the yes, game. Yes, yes. As you go on later, gold starts to outweigh it, but... I would agree. Yeah, it's the good old-fashioned snowball effect. You set up all this production, you get your city basically finished very early, and then you can concentrate on getting all that gold for the late game. yeah. Some people might be listening and saying, well, that's great. So I adopted Magnus. He does all of this for me early on. And it's it's kind of one of those things where it gets to be maybe mid to late game in a multiplayer situation. And I do kind of wonder how often we get to a mid to late game situation unless we've got an early start. But okay, let's assume that it is getting to mid to late game. And you're wondering, hey, Magnus, what have you done for me lately? First off, wow, way to show appreciation to (laughs) where you are currently in the game. (laughs) But second of all, just to tie it back to what was mentioned early on in the Magnus discussion, this thing about black marketeers, strategic resources not required in the city in order to build resource-dependent units, it is true that you may find yourself, it's like, hey, Dan, you talked about musketmen before, but I'm just going to go straight to infantry. I don't need to worry about knight or any other strategic resource. That's fine. So I'm not saying that you're always going to use Magnus in the mid to late game, but if you do need to use Magnus in the mid to late game, He's already there, and he's already built up so that you would be able to take that Tier 2. Because if you certainly didn't get provision, then you should have enough governor titles coming up that you'd be able to say, okay, I need to invest one or two in order to be able to do that. Because I know for, say, in the example of coal in the technology tree, you can go to industrialization, and it's like, hey, I don't have coal. I'm going to need battleships. Everybody who has played the game knows that the 
technology tree about where you find coal and where you go to battleships are completely divergent. So you're going to have a lot of time, say, between when you're going to be able to see that. One marketeer is not going to help you with upgrading to units that you don't have the resources for, though. So you still got to worry about that. When it comes to the multiplayer, though, when we're playing single player, we usually don't worry too much about losing our cities, which might have the resources as well. But in multiplayer, Mm -hmm. the idea of taking a city that has you know, your only po- uh, possible resource would be absolutely crippling. Mm-hmm. In multiplayer, I can imagine that Magnus is a very good buffer in case uh, someone's trying to steal your resource. All right. I think Magnus has a, enough of an inflated ego for today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> in the early game, Liang, the surveyor, quote, very likely to grab the surveyor just for the base bonus. And I'll stop there just for a moment to mention that this again, and we've talked about this before on the show, all builders trained in the city get plus one build charge. Okay. Then, quote, he's going to invest in other governors, but the mid-late game power she will bring to district production is incredible. And the early power she brings for producing government district buildings and city center buildings is incredible. Extremely versatile mix between early and late game power. And of course, getting that builder charge that so as soon as Liang is adopted she gets established in your city as we said before it's five turns all builders in that city get plus one charge getting extra build charges for chopping and for improving for early war and infrastructure is insanely powerful and will give you an edge regardless of what victory type you plan on going for unquote so an early adoption of Magnus and Liang could potentially mean you know what I'm going to you know I got a couple of cities that are close by okay, I want to harvest in this city. There goes Magnus. I'm going to send Liang to this city, and this city is going to produce that builder that gets the plus one builder charge, and then it's going to go perhaps to that nearby city and then go and get even more, more quickly. Uh, And even if you don't have a lot to chop early on, then maybe you would, in fact, want Liang because there's something else that you can improve. Oh, I need to improve my population, so I need to construct some farms. Oh, my city needs some production. I could really use a mine. And that one extra charge to give you four charges instead of three, and if you happen lucky to be China, there's five charges instead of four, that really starts to add up early on in the game, especially in multiplayer when it's online speed, where the decisions you are making every turn is that much more exponential to whether or not you're going to be able to do something later on and do something well. And chopping does consume a builder charge. Yes. So in some sense, you might even want to go Liang before Magnus so you can have some four action builders and then chop even more. Yeah, because you can usually get the first two governor points pretty quick. So it's very easy to grab her and then you've got your second city and then grab him. Yeah, and just put in the policy for quicker builders and just spam out a bunch of them and with four charges and then bring in Magnus and... It should be noted that the first promotion is basically as good as the policy card production toward a builder. So itself is quite good, especially now that I didn't used to uh, do a lot of harvesting. I do now, which requires the extra builder. So it really helps. And seeing as how you're going to want to be pushing, and we're going to talk about governments, pushing on political philosophy under the civics tree to get that first government, they both require state workforce and early empire, which is available in the ancient era. And both of those are going to give you one of your governor promotions. So you can also have both of these early on. And yes, again, depending upon the circumstance, you may decide, okay, I want to have Liang first and then Magnus, or it could be one or the other way around. The 30% bonus to the government building, especially I would imagine in multiplayer, because I imagine you would have to do um, a lot of early expansion. You need those cities up 
so you can get ready to go to war. And the 30% bonus to get the Ancestral Hall is very welcome. To Victor. Castellian, no general information listed. He starts with increasing city garrison combat strength by plus 5. Quote from the strategy guide writer, Very strong to help you defend against an impromptu war, especially when combined with the defensive tactics bastions, giving a city plus 11 combat strength, which is extremely unsavory to attack without an extreme advantage. Okay. Yeah, so the defense logistics, that is tier 1 on the right, city cannot be put under siege. Extremely powerful to prevent another player from taking a weakly positioned city easily. Combined with the rest of Castellian's kit, this can single-handedly thwart an offensive. There is also to consider the tier 2 right promotion, where cities gain an additional range strike per turn. Quote, while two shots looks nice since your city strength range power is tied with your strongest range units, this won't mean much until you hit machinery and upgrade an archer into an expo. While your city's range power is also tied to not just your strongest range unit, but a strongest unit period. So that could be your melee swordsman, for example. So being a predominantly single-player player... I rarely ever have my own cities put under siege. So what exactly does being under siege do to your city? Prevents it from healing. Yeah. All right. I've seen that happen once or twice. I will agree that as nice as city gain an additional range strike per turn is, if you go to tier one on the left where units defending within the city's territory get plus five combat strength. So it's not just even within the city hex itself. It's within the city's territory. That, as described, is extremely powerful for both defense and to hold captured cities. Plus five combat for all units in the city's territories applies offensively if the enemy you're attacking is also within the city's borders. So early on in combat, if it's, I'm getting war decked, I have been war decked. My gosh, there's a very strong argument to be made for the city that is closest, or one of the cities that is closest, perhaps most vulnerable, kind of on the fringe, maybe doesn't have the greatest production yet in order to be able to defend itself. So it would be better to have a stronger unit there because it's going to take a little while longer to get a second unit in there. Then I could definitely see that being an early consideration. But I think generally speaking, that early consideration would be after Liang and certainly after Magnus. And as I understand it with the garrison commander, this only applies to units that are defending. So this doesn't help you out with your counterattacks or with your range strikes. So, you know, make sure you've got some decent melee units parked around your city because otherwise your range units are still going to suffer even with garrison commander. Plus five on defense is actually quite nice if that's specifically what you want to do while off the competition because again you still have to think that this is players not ai ai you don't need it but for players put some swordsmen in front of a city and uh puts plus five combat on it just by defending and that can really hamper movement i can stink yeah plus any fortification bonuses absolutely and then that takes us to the mid game governor pingala the educator but, quote, due to the way he functions, you're not going to want to recruit him early unless you're secured that you will not be warred, unquote. And quite frankly, given that his start is plus 15% increase in science and culture generated by the city, even if you're secured that you will not be warred, you're still probably not better off adopting him early as compared to, say, Magnus. Because if you're not going to be warred early, you're probably going to be warred later on, or you're going to want to do the warring, and you're going to want to have 
have sufficient numbers of cities sufficiently developed in order to be able to produce what it is that you need to do to actually go ahead and defend yourself or go on the offensive. Yeah. Not saying that you necessarily ignore him, but I'm not prepared to be as black and white in that second part of that statement as this strategy guide writer says. You're not getting about eight or so beakers and culture from that specific city. I mean, you're just getting a fraction yep. of a bonus anyway, so it's it's not really worth it until you're generating a decent chunk. It's not empire-wide. It's, it's in the one city. I would imagine that part of his rationale comes from the fact, when I read about the districts, and we'll go to the districts, he said that he doesn't do campuses early. He focuses on the raw science from cities early, so he's not going to be generating campuses. I know it's because when it comes to Pengala, one of my favorite promotions is grants, actually, to put in a capital, and that's the one that doubles great people in that city. But if he's not building uh, campuses early, which was indicated in his strategy guide, then I can see why he would uh, downplay Pengala as an MP governor. You don't really need him until about midday. I mean, even if you want to build campuses early, you're not going to do that in every city. You might do that in your first two, maybe three, and then you might be doing other things. And you're not even going to want to touch culture. I mean, not that we don't need culture because we need to research the civics, but usually nobody's building a theater district until mid-late game. The great people grants, man. That's great. Situational governors in multiplayer. Reyna, the financier. While this governor is named the financier, I can honestly say that her upgrades will truly help your excluding specific situations. All of her bonuses are going to be extremely civ-dependent or situational, dependent or not, within your control. So yeah, the base thing. Land acquisition. Acquire new tiles and city faster. The strategy guide writer says, Useful to grab tiles in a specific city as soon as possible instead of purchasing them early, especially if you're wanting to grab tiles further out without purchasing them, unquote. I would take that statement more to heart if the game was good at selecting which tiles I would like to acquire first. I'm not certain I want crappier tiles sooner. I agree. (laughs) There was a discount on purchasing tiles. Yeah, that one I would go for early. Yeah. That would be a stronger situational one, but this one is... I think even Civ Five did a better job of grabbing the tiles you wanted. Agreed. Um, You have everything right next to a resource tile, but now I'm going to grab this random planes over here. What? Mm. The reason for that is it prioritizes cheaper tiles. Yes. Which is not right. Yeah. Very situational. In a multiplayer situation, especially, feeling like she's about the same as Moksha. I wouldn't go that far. I always have a hard time using this governor because a lot of the abilities that she gives you are things that are just not in your control, right? Like, you don't control which tiles the game decides it's going to give you next. You don't control whether or not other civs are going to send trade routes to your city. And, you know, Civ 6 doesn't really have much, if anything, that you can do to make any one of your cities a more attractive trade destination than any other. It's not like you can set up a caravansary or something like that is like, oh, I'm going to send a trade route to that city and then put this governor in that city to get the bonus from it. It's just you've got to just throw your hands up and hope that those trade routes come to you. Yeah. I've made very, very good money out of her in well-developed harbor cities, but yeah, otherwise, yeah. you know, as you, as you said, a lot yeah, of that's her, about a lot of her the, stuff doesn't work. That's about the only way that you can control getting those trade routes to that city is if you've got a mostly landlocked empire, and then you've got the one city on the coast that has the harbor. So every trade route that's coming from across the sea has to funnel through that one city. Then mm. yeah, foreign exchange is awesome in that city. But, but in, uh, in competitive, uh, yeah. It, it would be very hard to control it, I can. I would imagine. 
And in competitive, the other players might just flat out look and see, oh, you've got that governor in that city. I'm not going to send a trader out to that city because there's also no reciprocal benefit to the other players. So there's no incentive to the other player to do that and give you that bonus. Yeah, that would be nice. Gosh, I mean, at least with Moksha, stuff is in your control. Even if that stuff that's within your control is not something that's necessarily going to be beneficial to you more often than not in multiplayer. Ah, it's a shame. It's a shame. Moksha the Cardinal, no general information is listed, but they're starting Bishop. Religious pressure to adjacent cities is 100% stronger from the city. Uh, well, again, again, at least that's in your control because you decide what kind of religious base you're going to have in that city, and then that pressure is going to be 100% stronger. I think he said that it was a very powerful governor, and then he downplayed every single ability in it. Yeah, he did. <laughs> so make up your mind. Well, and especially in multiplayer, if you're the only person who even bothers to go for a religion. It is possible in that case that it could be beneficial, but I wouldn't be doing that if there was an early war situation, because that's investment that you're having to do early on. It's a gamble. If you thought you might be safe from war for a little while, then maybe, but that would also to me be dependent on your starting location, because, I mean, yes, I know you're going to want to go for a Pantheon, but... Once you've got the Pantheon, the infrastructure that you're going to have to develop to then build on top of that as compared to going for other things. Ah, I mean, scouting is obviously important, but I just I just don't know. I'm just not convinced. You might be building a religion around war, like taking the Pantheons and religious bonuses that are giving you military benefits. But, you know, even if you're doing that, you're probably just better off directly investing in military stuff rather than indirectly through religion. It looks like that he does like the first one, and I guess not so much the ones afterward. And the religious pressure to adjacent cities being 100% stronger can be valuable, especially if you are trying to screw with uh, someone else's loyalty. I can see that application, and he does mention that. He doesn't Um, say that the bishop is good overall. He says, really good if you want to spread your religion early. And certainly, again, in multiplayer, as we talked about, I think, a couple of episodes ago, you're probably going to be the only one that's going for that as compared to a single-player situation where the AI right from Vanilla Civ 6 release has been really, really good with regards to religion. And, of course, if you are going to go religion, if you believe that you're going to be able to have a bit of an extensive empire, like you're going to have you know, some multiple of cities in addition to being able to not be warred early on, because good luck in multiplayer trying to send your religion to somebody else. <laughs> yep, get off my lawn. Yep, because it's just like, oh, but wait, Dan, they don't have religious units to uh, battle my missionaries and apostles. Yeah, there's this thing called the Declare War button and Squish. So, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and if they find you early, the other part of that, of course, is in addition to having your religious units killed, you could also actually lose religious pressure that you have applied already if that loss is close enough to your territory. So you've got to watch for that as well. And then we might as well complete the set. Let's talk about Amani the Diplomat. Quote, the city-state governor extremely useful to get and maintain the strongest relations with city-states after you meet them and prioritize them. But she's also extremely strong for when you're on the offensive because of her eccentric loyalty boost abilities. The Diplomat's loyalty pressure output is 8 plus 2 plus 4 between all of her bonuses since amenities can provide loyalty. She'll be useful at all points of the game and is a very high priority. Okay, up front, if we're running city-states... If we have city-states, let's even assume that, okay, we're going to put city-states into the game. She'll be useful at all points of the game and is a very high priority. That depends. Not only are you having to choose Amani over one of the other governors, I don't know why you would put her before Magnus in any circumstance, and probably 
even Liang. If you are near a city-state and you have someone near you, they also know of that city-state. If they know you have become their suzerain, certainly, and even if they don't, right, you can go in and you can check what cities are currently influencing that city-state. If you've got, a, say, a cultural city-state, Mojandaro, I find Mackie on the map. I know she has an envoy there, probably because she found it before me. Curse you. You're getting plus two culture a turn, which is helping you to progress farther along the civics tree to raise, say, towards political philosophy, where you're probably going to adopt oligarchy. No, 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 no. That's fine. I'm just going to turn around and attack the city-state and take it for myself, or maybe even raise it to the ground. So I don't get this useful at all points in the game, and is a very high priority. Don't agree. Even if we're running city-states. I agree. When I'm looking at his rationales for all of the promotions, he really only puts up promoter, and promoter can be ruined by quite a lot of things, including spies, which you would probably have at that point. That said, I do like Emissary. He doesn't seem to like it as much, but I, I like Emissary because I like to try to jack capitals early, or rather capitals first, if possible. Emissary, uh, which, of course, gives um, plus two loyalty per turn from any cities nearby, helps to maintain the loyalty of a capital if you do take it. If city-states are banned, yeah, I don't see as much use for money. Well, and you've got to put up with that initial ability just being complete dead weight that you can't use at all. Yeah, so you need to wait until two promotions to get a decent ability, and then yeah. four yeah. to get, get the one that... Right. No, three, 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 to get the one that he's really uh, focusing on here. I don't other, know. Other than that, you just put Amani in one of your cities and generate loyalty. That's that's all it would do. Mm-hmm. That's questionable. Jump ahead here just to briefly discuss what is listed for espionage, which is coming soon. In the meantime, here are some of the effects of using spies correctly. I'm actually going to go in the reverse order here. You can pulverize their production, you can decimate your opponent's amenities, and you can delete enemy units. My interpretation, of course, the pulverizing their production, you're talking about the sabotage of production, you're decimating your opponent's amenities, you're inspiring revolt in cities, for example, and when it says you can delete enemy units, so we're talking about running counter-spies to increase the likelihood that you are going to delete other spies, which you may be able to do anyway if they are operating within your land, question mark. <laughs> it's a little hyperbolic without some more details. Yeah. But I appreciate the gumption. <laughs> So it'll be interesting to see if and when this guide gets updated, what exactly this person is talking about to give a little more context, to give a little more strength to what it is that they're saying. And as far as units go, the unit section of the guide just gives you all of the promotion trees. And quite frankly, I don't think going through that, again, is worthwhile, because A, he doesn't give specific suggestions for how that could be different in multiplayer. And I think just like in single player, yeah, fellow human players are probably going to be able to choose promotions better than the AI, which I think is generally the case. But in terms of the gameplay itself, that's still units on the map. So trying to differentiate between which promotions to take and when really doesn't differ, I don't think, substantially from a single player situation to try to apply this to multiplayer. In terms of governments and districts, we can discuss that in a third recording of an episode.
Miracle the Brand started a thing on the forum. AI would be twice as good at concrete if they changed catapults to support. Suggesting to make the catapults like the battering ram, which isn't targetable and can be stacked on another unit, then code in some AI behavior to always bring one to two catapults along on every conquest in the medieval and later eras, and suddenly they could bring a threat. Why don't we just have the AI be better at bringing battering rams to capture cities? How about that? There's so much focus on the uh, melee AI and not the ranged AI. So like, if AI did build more battering rams, then, well, I'd be a little more threatened. They do know how to do melee a little better. As Traveling Canuck writes, the AI puts out a lot of siege units quite often, but not usually in the right time or place. The priority seems to be that AI builds siege units while they're being attacked instead of the other way around. Because I see a lot of siege units just floating around when I'm attacking a city. But, but then um, they seem to forget them when they come to attack you. Yeah. That's, they'll, I, bring, uh, like, they'll bring long-range things like the archers or the crossbows, but they won't bring like battering rams. So if their swordsmen are sitting there knocking on your city, they'll run, oh, oh. So the I point I'm trying to draw is that it's possible that we don't need the catapults to change to any some sort of new categorization. It's really more of an AI issue. I also see a lot of issues where the AI will send in its catapults first, and then they send in (laughs) the melee units and the archers, and the catapults just get bombarded to death in like two turns before they get to fire. Or they send like five or six archers and maybe two melee units. And you know we're all going to focus down the melee units. And then, oh, yeah, are you that, the city that happens too. They'll send in the catapults and the archers and then there's one or two melee units and then you just focus fire the melee units and then the catapults and archers literally just stand there and don't do anything because your walls are at zero. Yeah. And you but just kill them with it. an archer that's in your city. Why don't we just eliminate catapults altogether? Because having them as a unit that moves across the continent is silly. Historically, That's actually, they were built on site. I actually pitched that late last night. Coworker and I had the idea of actually making catapults be more like a, an improvement that your military engineers build on the spot when you're attacking the city. And it would either just have a bombardment or it would just be something that automatically damages the walls of the city that it's built near. And the advantages to that would be that you wouldn't be able to target it with attacks. It would have to be actually pillaged by another unit. And it would make military engineers more useful. Of course, we'd have to move the military engineers to be earlier in the game so that you could actually build the catapults at the time that you should be building catapults. But yeah, that would be another option for changing the way they work. Well, that's still an issue of is the uh, AI using its production effectively when it comes to war? Uh, It doesn't matter what (laughs) it doesn't matter what type of unit it is military engineer or a battering ram or catapult. But I feel like it would be much easier to program the AI to bring a military engineer along with a siege rather than improving the performance of individual units on the field. Especially if we made it so that once you place the catapult, the AI doesn't even have to do anything with it. Like, don't give it a bombard. Just make it something where if you put it within the range of a city, it just automatically damages the walls of the city each turn. So the AI doesn't even have to think about what to do with it. They just place it. Do you think that that's uh, taking out too much agency? Maybe, but if it makes the AI better, then maybe in the long run, that's still an improvement. (laughs) So you're saying that Civ 6 should just uh, play by itself. You still have to bring the military engineer, right? So it's not like it's just, oh, I'm setting up a siege. I'm just automatically damaging the walls. So you have to 
place the military engineer, you have to put the catapult in a place where it's not easily just going to be pillaged by an enemy horseman or something. Okay. You know, you got to defend it. So there still are proactive things that the player and the AI would have to do to make sure that that catapult still does the job that it's supposed to do. It just wouldn't be a military unit that they'd have to shuffle all across the board and then just get killed in two hits. Uh, you would say that one unit per turn is actually part of it as well. Right. I, I think that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Of course, the AI is also really bad at protecting civilian units, so I don't entirely trust it to defend a tile with a siege improvement on it. So that might also end up just being a problem. But I feel like that's an easier problem to fix, especially in the case of a stationary thing to defend, than, again, improving all of the military AI wholesale. Because any improvements that they do to the catapults, I mean, the same problems apply to other units as well. The AI isn't particularly good at using ranged units either. Given that the AI is not very good at capturing cities, I do understand Marigold Rand's suggestion that if we made catapults like the Battering Ram, which again is non-targetable and can be stacked with another unit, they're already bringing catapults along. If they could do that, then they would be better at capturing the city. That could be kind of a dealing with a symptom rather than a cause. And for some people playing the game, it's I'm not interested in a grander design question about what could have been done or should have been done before this point. A potentially simple correction for this, although I don't know if it would make the AI twice as good, let's not go crazy, but I could see it being better at capturing cities as a result of this. The kind of flippant part of my brain is like, since they're good at building catapults, which are non-targetable and can be stacked on another unit, but not battering rams, why don't you make the battering rams non-targetable and can be stacked on another unit? Maybe that's why the AI brings them along. I'm being flippant uh, in a different way now. But I think maybe a short-term solution would be what it is that they're suggesting here. But I'm hesitant to suggest that because that sounds like it's rewarding a bigger question. Plus, if we go ahead and make that change, we could quickly lose sight of the fact there's a greater fundamental issue here, which has already been brought up as part of this greater conversation. So don't do it. Suggestion, don't do it. <laughs> Let us take a little more time and make this right. I know it's easy for me to say because I'm not the one that's actually going to have to do it, but... <laughs> 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 so, how would your gameplay change if you didn't chop? Well, there'd be a lot less early yields instantly, but I don't know if that would make a big difference in my style of gameplay because I don't chop. Yeah, D. Wilson is not really calling for Firaxis to change the chopping, but just rather you as the player making the decision not to do that. So when you resist chopping, how does that change your play? Well, without a better long-term bonus for leaving the forest intact, it's just still not particularly good play. The other issue also is you as the player might decide not to chop, but pretty sure even the AI is also going to continue to chop, let alone if you're with other human players. Yeah. So, I don't know, you're trying to increase your difficulty level without increasing your difficulty level? I mean, they could make it a game setting if they wanted to. I mean, you can win deity without chopping. It's just harder. A clue without says mid-game cities would be hard to get up and running and late-game production would be even lower than it is. More domestic trade routes is probably what would happen to my game. Mm. Yes, yeah, so you'd have more production. Yeah, you would need that, I think, in certain situations, especially just to be able to get the city up and running, to be able to have the decent infrastructure to produce decent infrastructure itself. Mm -hmm. UW has, if chopping doesn't provide a yield, then for one, you would need to further bring down overall production costs, but I would definitely keep a couple more around. Hmm, the argument for bringing down overall production costs. If you brought down overall production costs, 
you'd have to watch the scaling of that because then maybe you wouldn't miss the fact that chopping wasn't in the game anymore with everything being so cheap or you know considerably cheaper. But that is something that you could look at, yes. Although that's less about how you would change your play as compared to how the play in the game would change. From 11.11, where the username is actually the word 11 and then the number 11, chops are extremely useful to push a wonder or an early district while also being able to get back to other priorities like protection. I feel like on higher difficulty levels, game balance includes heavy chopping or nothing else would really get built in the first 75 turns, except for military, a few builders and settlers, and a couple of monuments. On deity, wonders would definitely be a huge risk without chopping. Basically pointless to try. I don't know about being pointless, but you're choosing not to chop with absolutely nothing else changing in the game, other than the fact to see how much can I handicap myself seems uh, a shortfall, like you're not going far enough for it to be meaningful. Yeah, unless it's one of those wonders that has the really, really restrictive, strict build requirements where you can be pretty confident that you're the only person who is even capable of building that wonder, I would probably not even bother with most wonders. Archon Wing. I would like it much more, actually, and care about developing cities. Right now, long-term production is pretty irrelevant. Who cares if one city is 300 production per turn? Just chop everything a city will ever build, get some units that you will keep forever, just upgrade them. And that'd be faster than actually setting up a production base. Well... <laughs> Even if you were to exclude chopping, given the strength of gold, <laughs> I, I guess for getting up some of your initial gold infrastructure might be limited, but once you actually have that infrastructure in place, then that's really kind of addressing the issues we've talked about before with the strength of gold versus production. But Archon's wing's suggestion that industrial zones would be relevant again. They still are. They are relevant, particularly if you can have some kind of a decent adjacency bonus. Not rather than, not that they're not relevant now, but I think that they would be more important if you didn't have chopping, yes, but I'm not certain how much more important that would be, because industrial zones would be about ongoing production, as opposed to this big one-time whoosh, even with overflow production. If industrial zones got even a minor adjacency bonus from lumber mills, would that maybe be enough to encourage not chopping? Probably not. Well, it could depend on the lay of the land, right? If you were able to construct lumber mills, and then you could place an industrial zone such that it would be able to tap into multiple lumber mills. I'm assuming you're thinking like a plus one adjacency for a lumber mill? Yeah, if you've got a carpet of forests and you plop an uh, industrial hub right in the middle of them, kind of the same way you might plop a campus right in the middle of a jungle. Then, of course, you'd have it to be balancing. It's going to take a builder charge to get those lumber mills. So that plus one production... Mm, am I going to be able to get more out of that potentially rather than saying sending the builder and I don't know mining something or even sending that builder and doing something else like constructing a farm but I, I think it certainly would be better but it would be very situational you just have to get the map that set that up properly it seemed that you were just suggesting the other minute that possibly shops uh, should not be instant and that maybe uh, the resources from a chop should possibly even have go through a number of turns. Maybe even you get more uh, value out of it, but maybe the instant chops is part of the reason why we devalue industrial zones. And maybe if it was on a long term basis, it would be uh, more reasonable on chopping. Maybe the yields themselves not being quite so strong, combined with dealing with the overflow. I think part of this comes from just how strong chopping is right now. And of course, this person's notion of just not chopping, choosing not to chop, as opposed to the suggestions of we shouldn't be able to chop for stuff. I think it's 
almost a, really an overreaction to the circumstance. Probably. Because I think it would be ridiculous to either not have them on the map, forced in the first place, or not being able to chop at all. That would just be weird. Or and I certainly don't want to go back to Civilization for jungle removal, which is, hey, congratulations, the jungle is gone. You got absolutely nothing out of that, really. There's something in the middle that can be found here, but I think it's worth, again, raising the issue that we have with chopping, which is that chopping should be good, but it shouldn't be so damn good. And that's even before Magnus. Yeah, maybe if chopping weren't just a lump sum, maybe if it gave you like a five-turn percentage bonus in the city or something like that. Well, I wouldn't want it to be percentage. Well, I don't know. Early on, that would be pretty low, unless it was a big percentage. Right, that would improve the value of industrial zones because you would want the industrial zone to get that base production yield up so that that percentage bonus from chopping would actually be really valuable. So you would save your forests until you had industrial zones up and running. Mm. Otherwise, you just wouldn't be getting very much. I suppose that's reasonable. The idea that right now harvesting can be the worth of 20 turns wouldn't be the same thing if it was percentage-based. I see what you're saying. I'm not entirely sure if I agree with it, but I do think that that's definitely somewhat well, reasonable. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with it either. I was just kind of throwing it out there because it's just like, well, if we're thinking of ways no, no. to rebalance chopping, then maybe that's something that could be at least considered. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You could also have a situation, say, okay, I'll just use some numbers here. You want to start production on something this turn. It's going to cost you 50 hammers. And that's enough to get you that building right now, which in and of itself is a separate question. Maybe that's too strong. Okay. But now you've got an overflow. Let's say that that chopping gave you 60. Some people might say, well, then just get rid of overflow. Well, the thing is, it's like, okay, we only needed 50 out of this 60, so we don't need that more this turn, so let's just discard it. Maybe then rather than that being 10, that can be applied instantly to a next something. Maybe as of the next term, it can be applied, but perhaps there's some rate of decay because it's okay. Well, also, especially early on in the game with the time that's passed, it's like, man, that lumber has been sitting around for a while. Um, it's, it's seen better days. <laughs> Maybe that 10 is only worth uh, 7 or 8 now. And again, you might think, damn, that's not going to make a difference. Two flipping hammers. And so the, the numbers are just being used for illustrative purposes. The point is that you get some kind of measure of decay. So you might instead decide, you know what? I don't want to waste that 10. I'd rather just wait until I'm going to construct something that's worth 60 hammers, and that's going to give me the 60 that I need, and therefore I get that, and I don't have to worry about any kind of decay. I actually made use of that 10 rather than leaving some of that 10 behind. Possibly. I disagree with any sort of decay in any 4X game, unless it's specifically bounced for it, because of the whole fact that nobody who likes to play games likes to have things taken away from them, if you know what I mean. I get that, and I think that the being taken away from it would be decay, but then at the same time, the strategy would be, because I totally get you need to be able to have a counter to that, it's either you're not going to worry about that 10, because, well, what do I care about that extra 10? My city is already getting eight production a turn anyway, so it's really not going to matter whether I have some or all of that. Or at the very least, you start to think about, of course I'm going to chop. I'm just not going to chop right now. I want to be able to construct that building as well, but I need to wait a few turns until I get that tech, to complete the research on that technology to be able to do that. So I'm not going to chop that now. Sure. Why not? 
elsewise from the thread, perhaps from a clue without. I don't think chopping really needs to be nerfed or stopped as such. It just maybe shouldn't have escalating value. Instead, the value should perhaps increase when you research certain civics or texts or with certain cards, or should basically top out at some point late game. The other thing that would balance chopping more would be just having the game last longer so upfront production didn't trump long-term production so much, although that's always unavoidable to some extent. Can you imagine there was no scaling, that trees are only valuable uh, in Stone Age and not... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would just, I think, push you even more to just chop all of them right at the start of the game. Yeah, because it would be only valuable. Yeah, that wouldn't make you save them. That would just make you want to chop them as early as possible. So you just spam out 20 builders at the beginning of the game and just chop everything in sight. It could be that, and maybe this is partial reaction to the, hey, let's save all our forests so we can chop out spaceship parts later on. (laughs) Maybe at some point it's, yeah, you know what, you go ahead and you chop that, but you're not going to be able to apply that chop to your current space production. Perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll apply that to the next thing that you construct that could actually be used to build whatever it is that you are doing, so that that way it's still not likely to be that, hey, I'm going to chop everything early on in the game, like this is suggesting, otherwise it's just going to be capped and you can't use it anymore. But we also don't have the ridiculousness that we have you know, spaceship gauges made out of balsa wood. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I, sorry for the giggle, <laughs> it's just the imagination of using chopping trees to make a spaceship. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to that point, here's another dumb brainstormy idea. Maybe an idea for uh, Civ 7 is to actually split production into two different types of production, lumber and mineral production. So you build some things out of wood, you build some things out of minerals, and they're two different things. I don't disagree because in a lot of systems when production is king, it is valuable to re-look at that and see if it should be separated. And Well, this is kind of a Civ 4 joke, but it's like, hmm, how did they chop wood without axemen? Oh, we knew we should have kept one of those around. (laughs) Recorded for episode 305 with Makalua, me and team, Mega Bears fan, Uber Frog, and warning you too. Leaving Gooding Huts intact in a region you settled could grant cities bonuses. Ah, but you don't know what it is until you come across it, so you don't know what kind of bonus you're getting. I mean, the game knows, but you don't know. They could maybe do something with the similar to like the observation outposts in uh, Stellaris, where it's like a primitive culture and you just like set up duck blinds or whatever to observe them and it gives you like culture. The second part of this is that if they could automatically transform into a village once you settle for enough turns, and that would, the villages could grant your city example here is extra food production, but extra something production. You know, but eh. Goody Huts, the stuff you get is more valuable early. Sometimes that's a, like a whole population. And I was thinking about that population. Oh, we didn't know what was in here. Hey, the Goody Hut. Oh, there are people living here. They decided to join your civilization and go to your adjacent city. Well, maybe you could have the option with, hey, they want to join your civilization. Do you want to send your nearest city or do you want them to set up a new city right here? Yeah, that's another thing. Although we've, I think we've had that in previous versions of Civ where people complain about the free settlers you sometimes got on certain levels. Yeah. Well, and that and I mean, that's, this is not a free settler necessarily. Yes. Because this might be fixed to where the Goody Hut is. Yes, exactly. It's still a city from nothing, basically. Yes. It, it's less strong than getting a settler, but it's still iffy. Or again, alternatively, you could have a system where they're either going to create a city for you, or if it's inconvenient for you to have a city there, they create a city state. 
I'm not sure the game can handle crating city states. Yeah, I don't think Civ Six can right now. I know Civ Five couldn't. But... Well, if it spawned a city state settler when you took that option, would that work? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know you could just turn around and yoink that, but yeah, there's that. The functionality of actually putting the city state there. I wonder if part also what Supremacy King is getting at in the second sentence about encourage leaving Goody Huts alone for a longer term bonus or popping them for a big short term bonus rather than the current strategy of always popping them so that it's like, okay, I want this. So now, <laughs> now what are you going to do? You're going to surround it by military units if you think someone else is going to pop it or you just keep a scout in the vicinity that tries to block people from taking it because you want to wait for that longer term bonus growing over time. I guess hypothetically, you could park the unit on it, and then they could give you a dialogue that says, do you want to accept this bonus or not? And you could say no, and then this goody hut just stays there. And, and you, you leave could, that unit there. You could camp the unit there. I mean, uh... I, yeah, but <laughs> not, very, not very elegant, but... Uh-huh. My other problem with it is, though, is the goody huts are mystery huts to us. We don't know what's in them. What if you spent all this time guarding the thing and it was just one pop all along or 50 gold all along what do you, without giving the player some indication of what you expect to get from that hut? I mean, maybe well, that's in the a, dialogue box. Yeah, but. If there's a dialogue that pops up asking if you want the reward or not, I would assume the dialogue would tell you what the yeah, reward is. But, yeah, but then 50 turns later, do you remember what that dialogue box said? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you could highlight over the tile <laughs> I mean, and it tells you. Maybe once you come into it the but... first time, it pops it into a different little thing on the tile or something. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds Mouse like over. what he's suggesting is basically for Goody Huts to be essentially what city states are. So I feel like that is already in the game. We don't need the Goody Huts to be that as well. Maybe it could be you, dialogue box. Take what it is that you can get right now, but if you stay on that hex for, say, 10 turns and you've defended that, then, okay, the trade-off is, well, I'm paying maintenance on that unit that's not going anywhere and exploring, but I'm going to get a little something extra by sticking around for those 10 turns. Recorded for episode 306 with Dan Q, Makalua, the Me and Team, Mega Bears fan, and Uber Marklar. Bookender in the chat says, deciding when to do things to micromanage ages is boring. I don't see it as strategic. Well, the way it's set up, it can be strategic, although it's not something that you have to do whatsoever. And that's, that's a good thing. It's one of those things that if you understand the game well enough and you're trying to give yourself this edge case of, like, for example, I don't know, I'm currently fighting in the Renaissance right now. I have musketmen, and oh gosh, the war that I'm already in, or about I'm, I'm about to get into, they also have musketmen. Or they have musketmen, but they don't have as many. I'm still running around with swordsmen. They've got lots of promotions on them, but I've got myself a great general. And hey, if I could delay myself from getting out of a dark age, or delay staying in a normal age and get into a dark age, I can use that extra combat to go and keep that momentum and that war going until I myself am able to upgrade from swordsman into musketman. Please, oh, please let me have Niter, obviously, in this situation, or get it domestically or imported. Buzzing says it feels unauthentic, avoiding progress and discovery to delay getting points. Right, but pretty much the only two times where you would avoid getting era score is either you're not going to cross the threshold for a normal age or a golden age, so you want to delay getting era scores until you're in the next era and they'll benefit you, or you've already hit the value for getting a golden age and additional era points are not going to help you beyond that. So if we add some reward 
for the overflow on era points, then that would make it so that you would now be incentivized to continue earning those points in the current age if you've already triggered a golden age. And that would take away one of those two things. And I think the other one is fine to leave in the game because it's like, eh, things might be bad. We want to make sure that in the next era, we're going to be able to make things better. Because the way the game is set up right now, it is possible, and I think that they are edge cases, that avoiding getting out of a dark age or pushing yourself into a dark age is progress given what it is that you are trying to do. A warmonger example of the Twilight Valor of plus five melee strength, which is you could say, well, you could get additional melee strength from a great general. Yeah, that's true. And I would have that. But I would also like that from Twilight Valor because maybe my opponent also has that. And I think also just using the term era and some things that you get era score four. And then said there are also instances where most of the time, the error score is because you do something purposely, but sometimes it's, oh, hey, I'm exploring the map, and I'm the first to discover the natural wonder. Hey, I was hoping to get error points, probably, because that's progress, but then there's also the, oh, the only way that can access this social policy is in order to stay into a dark age. It doesn't mean that I have to do that. It can just be, well, Dan, why don't you just delay what you're doing, get to Renaissance, upgrade your swordsman into musketmen, or just construct some more musketmen, or get some ranged units in there to do some damage to help offset what you're not getting from your melee in terms of your strength. I know there are lots of other combinations in there, but I don't think it's boring, but I certainly wouldn't want it to be required. And I hope we're not giving the impression that you should do this, or that you always want to do that, but I think it's interesting that a dark age does not necessarily mean it's only negatives. Yeah, you've got loyalty issues, which you definitely also need to be taking into consideration, but there can be benefits to this, having it, and also just kind of like, hmm, I could use the negative era points, so maybe I should start a wonder and hope not to finish it so I can lose some of these era points, because I've already been knocked into a normal age, but if I can just get beaten to this wonder before I construct it and the era rolls over, then I can stay in the dark age. Oh man, I could have way too much fun with this. Hey, this is a great idea. No, not really. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. That's 44-121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. What do you think? Does that sound like a plan? Yeah. It's a plan. It's a plan, but is it a good plan, Drew? Are you signing off on it? You know what? I'm going to be neutral. (laughs) Oh. It's definitely a plan, he says. Well, you're neither friend nor foe, so therefore you are a zero. Okay, well, that's better than a negative here, Mackie. You know, zero is better than negative one. He was a poet, and I didn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) I think Dan is trying to argue that zero is technically positive or something. Well, it's positively better than a negative, Mackie. Ha! Oh, I love it when you make those cute noises. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) No flirting, Dan.
I'm just trying to improve diplomacy, Drew, and we know diplomacy can be improved in Civ Six, <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. Uh, yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, air quotes. Which I'm doing. Why I just didn't what? stay, dude? <laughs> Why you just didn't stay going uphill on your bike? Yeah, exactly. So, Jason, you've got the least seniority, so do something constructive around here. <laughs> Woo-hoo, yay, something to do. Wait, technically, I have the least seniority. You have know. no, you have no seniority. That's not less. That's none. Okay. You're not an official, you know, co-host thing, that kind of thing. That's where Dan's going. Absolutely. Well, thank you everyone for listening to Polycast episode 313. I've been one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears fan, along with Dan Q. 313, forwards or backwards, it's the same. Makalua. I need lunch now. And guest co-hosts, Drew Sane. Flint still doesn't have clean water. True. And also, Canis Albinus was here for a while, but he's not here anymore. Record date, July 14th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.